Back to another episode of Sean Ned's Do Baseball. I'm Sean. And I'm Ed's. We're bringing you baseball history. That's right. We're a bi-weekly baseball history podcast where the story catcher doesn't know what the story pitcher is going to be throwing at them. That's right. And today, I'm putting on the tools of ignorance. That's right. I'm, I'm throwing you, I don't know, a, a mixed bag here today. A mix. We're going to mix a it up today. A a mixed bag, yeah. Yeah. Throwing my whole repertoire at you today. All right. Well, I'm excited. Excited to sit back and hear a story. Uh, before we start, uh, make sure you guys give us a follow, give us a review, uh, give us whatever. Uh, we'd appreciate it. Uh, we're on Twitter at Doing Baseball, uh, Instagram at Doing.Baseball, and TikTok at Doing Baseball. I believe so, and I'm at Sean Do Baseball on and, Twitter. And I'm at Ed's Do Baseball on Twitter. Oh, yeah. We, we didn't make a Twitter comment either, but anyways, anyway, I'm sure Twitter's gotten much worse since we recorded this. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> um, all right, well, I'm excited to, to hear uh, hear the story today. Uh, yeah, it's getting getting into the off season, so I'm, I'm just aching for any kind of baseball content. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess by this time it'll be a couple weeks since the World Series ended, and uh, yeah, we'll be, like you say, getting in the off season, so we'll be aching for some content. But we have some content here for you today, so um, I guess I'll just get into it. Uh, go here we for go, it. Sean. the The game of baseball, as we know, is one of statistics and averages, right? Uh, the course of a season is, as the cliche says, a marathon, not a sprint. Yep. And because of this fact, the differences between an average season and a great season can at times come down to a slight extension of a slump or a couple extra days on a hot streak. And the difference between a good and a great season can be just as much of a coin toss. Sure. Right? So with that much at stake whether it's a young player's early days of their career trying to stick with a club, a player teetering the scales between fourth outfielder and everyday starter, star and superstar eyeing that next big contract, or veteran player trying to stick around for a few more years, baseball players are always looking for that edge on the competition. And there have been many ways that players have tried to get a leg up on their competition. Yes. You know, we've seen it in the controversy surrounding sticky stuff, both past and present. 100%. And with pitchers and band tools such as Joe Necro's Emery Board, uh-huh. you know, stuff like that. We've seen it recently with the Astros and Red Sox and their sign-stealing scandals. That's true. Yankees are in there. They're in there too, but kind of more swept under the rug. Oh, 100%. Unfortunately. 100%. Everyone was doing it. But we're going to remind you of that fact. <laughs> uh, and also the same sort of thing in the past with Tom Foolery a la Pierce Childs and his electric coach's Fan- box. Fantastic episode. Yeah. Uh, we've seen it in the late 80s and 90s with his what is known as the steroid era. Yes. And we've seen it in the golden age, or the quote golden age of baseball with the use of greenies and other drugs. 100%. Doc Ellis and LSD notwithstanding. Cocaine is a hell of a drug as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
but throughout the history of baseball, regardless of era, there's been one common way that we have seen baseball players and all athletes, but of course we focus on baseball players here, have tried to edge their opponents. And that, my friends, is with superstitions. Motherfucker. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. That's what we're doing. I'm telling a few stories about superstition. So I love it. Most fans have likely heard of some of the common ones around the diamond, like players not touching the foul lines when crossing them. Don't touch the foul yeah, lines. It's just, just common knowledge. It's unwritten rule. Yeah, and as a, as a guy that sometimes has to put down the foul lines, don't fuck with my foul lines. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's not an easy job. No. Okay, uh, players also will stick with the same bat while on a hot streak, mm-hmm. obviously. And you st- stay the fuck away from a pitcher when he's, you know, doing well nearing a no-hitter or something. Yes, 100%. Yeah. You don't talk about it. No, you don't mention it either. Yeah, that's important. I, forget, I don't know why I wouldn't well, even think to I'm say here. that. But That's why I'm here. Yeah, thank you. Uh, some players who play up the middle of the field won't come off the field before touching second base. Mm-hmm. Uh, famously, Joe DiMaggio did this and many other center fielders as well. Some but, go on the field and have to touch second base true. before every inning. True, that's that's also very true. We as Blue Jays fans and Rockies fans will also know that we saw this with Troy Tulowitzki. Yes. He'd always touch second before coming off the field at shortstop. Um, so t- today, Sean, this will probably be a bit of an odd episode, but I hope it will be f- a fun one. I kind of hope to just tell some fun facts at first sort of in the style of the dollops episode on Rube Waddell. Okay. Like, I know that was a full biography, but <laughs> it was also just a list of ridiculousness. <laughs> you so know? you've compiled a list of ridiculous superstitions that you've found throughout baseball history? Yeah. I, I, I'm going to also tell a bunch of fun facts and sort of tell two half biographies. All right. You know, I'm not going to go into the... It would just be too long if I had to go into the two into the details of these two guys. But anyway, so like I say, I want to start with some interesting and weird superstitions from throughout history that don't particularly focus on any one player or team. But I eventually will segue into talking about a couple of specific players with some strange quirks, one of whom who actually happened to celebrate his birthday yesterday on November 22nd. Whoa. So we know that baseball is a game of routine. You got to stick to your routine and just play your game and make the adjustments. But in general, you're keeping to your own routine and regimen, especially if you're a pitcher. You know, my personal favorite eccentric superstition regarding a pitcher's pregame meal that I stumbled across is that Bill Spaceman Lee supposedly had a pregame preference for organic buckwheat pancakes. Interesting. Sprinkled with a half ounce of marijuana. Of course. <laughs> well, why not? Yeah. I mean, it makes sense for Bill Lee. Nolan Ryan is said to have eaten vanilla ice cream and chili beans prior to many big games because he believed these two foods both calmed the nerves and aided digestion. If I'm shitting my pants, I'm not going to be thinking about what yeah. I'm, what I'm, what's going right. on in on my the game. Stum- my stomach's gurgling. I'm not going to be worrying about the next big hitter that I'm facing. Just thinking, I got to get through this or I'm going to shit my pants. <laughs> Catch you comes to, what's going on, Nolan? My ass is blowing a bubble. Yeah. <laughs> That's gross. <laughs> Some players, however, stumble upon their routines by coincidence and earn a place in the Oddball Hall of Fame in addition to enshrinement at Cooperstown 
and have become known for not just their Hall of Fame careers, but become urban legends as well. I'm, of course, talking about Wade Boggs becoming the Chicken Man. Oh. Which, in fact, was by chance. Boggs, Chicken, by chance. Yes, the the correlation came by chance. I mean, he obviously liked chicken, but... Yeah. um, So he had this idea for the chicken cookbook. And he was encouraged by his friend to make it. Boggs <laughs> recalled to Michael Clare for a August 2021 article for MLB.com, which, by the way, is a great article about this amazing story of how Boggs stumbled upon his legendary superstition. He said, quote, A buddy of mine that owned a restaurant here in Tampa named Brad Gray said, Hey, why don't you write a chicken cookbook with your grandmother's and mother's and wife's recipes and we'll go in and sell it. Okay, so it's just a money-making ploy in the beginning, right? These women, the the, (laughs) I love that there's like chicken recipes. (laughs) I love chicken. We only eat chicken in the Bog family. (laughs) We only. (laughs) We're a bird family, you know that. Yeah. Birds and beer. What is this steak? Uh, I'm gonna disown you, Wade. (laughs) So then Boggs allegedly came up with the name Foul Tips. And they were off to the races. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great pun. It is a great pun. (laughs) It's a great pun. But there was a catch. Okay. Boggs claimed that Gray told him, quote, Well, the only sticking point, Wade, is that you're going to have to eat chicken every day to sell it. Why? (laughs) I don't understand why. But that's what Gray thought. Listen, man, I don't make the rules if you write a chicken cookbook. (laughs) You got to eat chicken every day. (laughs) So it's a Wade Boggs style, and he does it. Okay. He eats chicken every day. And then Wade Boggs said, quote, Basically, in 1983, I ate chicken every day, and I wound up winning a batting title. (laughs) So the chicken worked. I guess. Yeah, so... I remember Jose Bautista saying he wouldn't eat red meat during the season, so maybe maybe Boggs was, <laughs> Boggs onto, was something. onto something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Boggs not as much of a power hitter, but yeah, still. but still. Okay, so, you know, obviously the superstitious behavior of players is not limited to their pregame meals. Mm-hmm. The rituals can take all sorts of forms. Former major league player, pitcher, Jason Grilly, had a strange ritual growing up where he tried to use the power of a baseball card to help him advance his career. Okay. Okay. Grilly was both a pitcher and a hitter when he was growing up, so he glued together his two favorite baseball cards. But then you... Okay. All right. What were you going to say? I'm not going to critique him. Okay. Then you just get the picture and not the stats or anything. That's that's irrelevant at this point, I think. Continue. He glued one of Nolan Ryan and the other of Ken Griffey Jr. back to back. And on days when Greeley pitched, he placed the card in his cleat with Ryan's side up. And when hitting, he placed it in with Griffey's side up. (laughs) I mean, it worked. I mean, I mean, the Nolan Ryan side must have worked a little bit better, but <laughs> must have been a better card. Yeah, more valuable yeah, card. Yeah, it's in a better condition. Yeah, it's more mint. That's hilarious. Why yeah. didn't he just keep the cards separate? <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. Could have just switched them out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We can go visit him in like Burlington. <laughs> Jason, yeah. we got a question. <laughs> this would have been much better for you. You could have sold those cards. You could have kept them. You could have looked at the stats. <laughs> 
And superstitions are not just limited to off the field either, which brings me to focus on the first of the two players I alluded to, one that you, Sean, as a young Cubs fan in the mid-90s may remember. Sammy? No. Oh. I wish to briefly talk about one Turk Wendell. Oh my, yeah. Okay, yeah. You remember Turk Wendell? Yeah, I do remember Turk Wendell. Stephen John Wendell was born on May 19th, 1967 in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Stephen was the third of six children. He had a brother named Charles and four sisters, Audrey, Tricia, Terry, and Deborah. His father, Charles D. Wendell, was an auto body technician by trade. At other times, though, he worked as a foreman for General Electric, which was the biggest employer in Pittsfield for a long time, and he owned and operated a variety store. Turk's mother, Beatrice, was a homemaker, and Stephen became by, known by his nickname by the age of three. By one account, the little boy would repeatedly jump face first from a, from a window into a mound of snow made by his grandfather. Oh. And the old man said, that was something only a Turk would do. <laughs> no. I know. I was, as soon as you announced it, Stephen John Wendell, I'm like, okay, so where does Turk work into this? At no point in my bingo card was there, was there Jumping into racist s- grandpa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> claiming. Okay, but I should continue that I think that's an incorrect quote. Okay. Like saying something only a Turk would do. I think the quote should actually be, and and Wendell himself clarifies this in a second, that it should be, that was something only Turk would do. Ah. Uh, only a Turk. Okay. Because okay. in 1991, Wendell himself denied these claims, however, and explained the reason was my grandfather nicknamed me after one of his buddies yeah. because I was always doing stupid, rebellious things. Oh, so it was like, ah, that's Turk. Yeah. Oh, little the, Turk. Little Turk. Yeah. He's, he's a fucking idiot. He jumps out of windows and <laughs> yeah. snow piles. Yeah. Just like Turk. Yeah. <laughs> How did that guy die again? Yeah. <laughs> Broken neck. Can't remember how. <laughs> So, Wendell's father was quoted to say, quote, He wrecked everything in no time at all. He always thought he was indestructible. He always has been a daredevil. (laughs) For some reason, I thought you were going to say, He's always been a dick. (laughs) No. Yeah, he says that about his sons. Yeah. (laughs) So, Wendell, without fail, comes up in nearly every discussion of baseball's superstition and is inevitably singled out as an extreme example. Even when he was in Little League, he wore the same Dallas Cowboys shorts under his uniform until, quote, 2,000 or so washings kind of wore them out. (laughs) (laughs) So he's been superstitious from the start. Yep. He said, quote, I've wanted to be a baseball player ever since I could remember. He said that in 92. I used to tell my friends that I would play in the big leagues, and they used to tell me to grow up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Stop. (laughs) Stop wanting to achieve your dreams. Yeah, stop having great aspirations. You sounded like Turk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he played some shortstop and third base for Wakona Regional High School in Dalton, but it was, as you can imagine, pitching that Wendell really excelled at. In his senior year, 1985, he threw three no-hitters and was a member of the all-Western Massachusetts baseball team. Wendell then went to Quinnipiac College in Hamden, Connecticut. At Connecticut, his coach Dan Gooley said of Wendell, quote, he was the most loyal, honest person I've ever met. He wasn't showing people up. That's just who he was. None of it was an act. 
everything about him was legitimate. Just kind of foreshadows that maybe he was doing some odd stuff. Mm-hmm. So, as a college junior in 1988, Wendell was 5-3 and three with 66 strikeouts in 62 innings. He was a second-team All-New England selection. Quinnipiac won the Northeast 10 tournament and earned a berth in the NCAA Division II tournament. During that tourney, Wendell pitched 15 innings against Manfield's, Mansfield University in one game. So he's having success. Did you say he pitched 15 innings in one game? Yeah. Holy sh... Okay. Yeah. So, you know, he's... He's doing he's good. He's got some pedigree. Yeah. You know, they're really relying on him. They're, they're destroying his arm completely. <laughs> yes. Because he's so good. Yeah. So he's having success, and because of this success, the Atlanta Braves chose Wendell in the fifth round of the amateur draft that June. And when he signed, it was in his contract that he be given the uniform number 13. If it was available. If it was. <laughs> That's pretty strong. Look. Yeah. You better give me 13, all right? Or else I'm not coming. As long as it's available. Yeah. If it's not, never mind. But. <laughs> it's a weird rule, yeah. Basically, when you say it like that, it's really just a stipulation that, like. <laughs> well, he wants 13 if it's available. And, I mean, for the most part, you get. If it's available, you probably could have it as long as... Yeah, like, <laughs> you didn't really need to put it in your contract. Well, I, I mean, maybe some teams at the time just assigned numbers. I don't know. Anyway. Maybe, yeah, who cares? Yeah, it's so not he a, gets 13. He's it's 13. Not a, it's not important. Yeah. In the minors, Turk quickly gained attention, though, for the many elements of his routine, which, among the most notable, were he would emphatically leap over the foul lines as he took... And left the field, mm-hmm. which is pretty standard. That's not that weird. Yeah. You know, he said, quote, in high school, I stepped on the foul line when taking the field. I gave up some runs that inning. From that point on, I never wanted to step on the foul line again. <laughs> <laughs> it's really confirmation bias, but. Yeah. Know. I could tell you that this rock <laughs> makes sure there's no bears around. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Do you see any bears? <laughs> That's that's essentially the logic. Yeah. So, okay, another weird, this is a weird one here. He was squatting until his catcher squatted. So he and the catcher could never be standing or squatting at the same time. So when the catcher squatted, he stood. When the catcher stood, he squatted. So if the catcher stood up to throw to second base, he would squat. Well, again, which would make sense because you're ducking out of the way. But, but then I, he would stay squad. <laughs> yes. Until which doesn't make sense. No. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, he would draw three crosses in the dirt on the mound, and Wendell, who read the Bible nightly, said, "Quote: The crosses are there for the three prayers. I pray. I pray out there to do the best of my ability. I pray to be injury free, and I pray to win. And then he would lick the dirt off his finger. Okay." <laughs> So, that's I not... mean, that that's pretty standard religiousy practice. Eating the dirt, though, just <laughs> <laughs> just wipe it on your pants, just, bro. <laughs> just wipe it on your pants. You don't need to eat dirt afterwards. There's nothing special about that dirt. You just made a sign. <laughs> yeah, it's holy dirt. <laughs> <laughs> He'd wave to the center fielder before his first pitch. Well, that's just friendly. And he would not throw the pitch until the center fielder had waved back. Okay, that's that's a little that's beyond. He's like standing there, <laughs> just waving, while the guy's like so he's getting heckled. The center fielder's getting heckled, distracted, can't start. He has bad eyesight. I don't. 
<laughs> why is the why does he want started? me to come in? <laughs> I'm staying there. Uh, so this apparently actually dated back to uh, Wakona in high school, where, fun fact, the fielder behind him was future big league executive Jim Duquette. Okay. <laughs> we just like waving at each other. Me and Jim. <laughs> We're best buddies. Best buddies. I figured I'd just wave to every center fielder after that. <laughs> he would uh, chew black licorice That's and it. brush his teeth between innings. Every inning? Apparently. That's... Maybe not every, but... Pretty often. Like when he was pitching, I'm assuming. Not. <laughs> I'm not even sure about that. Because it says here the clean living Wendell didn't want to chew tobacco. In fact, he noted in 2010 that he had never tried tobacco in any form or even had a sip of alcohol, quote, or any drug. He also emphasized in a New York Post article from May 2010, headlined, quote, former Met loves ranch life. Hates roids. <laughs> I just like my licorice. Yeah. That's it, guys. I've eaten so much licorice today, I need to stop. I'm, guys, we're doing a dry, we're doing a licorice dry September. No more licorice. Licorice free August, boys. <laughs> and obviously the toothbrushing was a direct consequence of the licorice. Well, I would assume so. Well, Wendell said... Quote, I don't like the way licorice makes my teeth feel. Stop It just stop sits there. It. I don't want my teeth to get stained, he told Bob Nightingale in 1992. And yes, to your point, just chew gum or something, bro. Like, Big League Chew is long out by yeah. 1992. Bazooka you know? Joe has been a, a staple of American society. It's probably, well, that's too much sugar. <laughs> you know how many times I'd have to brush my teeth? Tops is a gum company. Yeah. Okay. Were they, did they, I bet you they, well, maybe they stopped putting gum in the packs by 1992. Probably. Anyway, he wouldn't wear socks. And he said, quote, socks don't serve any purpose. They're useless. <laughs> Absolutely do. <laughs> he supposedly wouldn't even put on a pair for his sister's wedding, according to Nightingale's article. That's, see, it's taken it. Although I've been to an Italian wedding, I wish I wasn't wearing socks. <laughs> it's stylish all of a sudden. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But. You stand out if you wear socks? Yeah, apparently. Okay. Apparently. You gotta wear the shorter <laughs> pants with no socks. But he's he's just that's this is a bit much. He's got a lot of things, yes. Okay, yes. continue. Uh and he was insistent that the umpire roll the ball back to him. Oh what? <laughs> if yeah, if an ignorant umpire did throw him the ball, Wendell would either watch it go by or he'd let it bounce off his chest and fall to the ground before he picked it up. <laughs> he needs to get the umpire off that ball before he catches it. Needs to cleanse the palate with some grass. Imagine, does he tell them? I would assume you'd have to tell them before, and just that's a ridiculous request. Just, hey, Jim. Uh, yeah, when the setup guy comes in, just roll the ball to him. He's insane. <laughs> <laughs> he keeps eating so much licorice, even though he hates it. Yeah. <laughs> he hates licorice, keeps chewing it. He's fucked in the head, man. <laughs> Wendell, also an avid hunter, wore a necklace made from claws and teeth of various animals he killed. <laughs> okay. All right. He's I got mean, a hobby. It's, yeah, I mean, that's not completely out there, although I wouldn't suggest it. No. <laughs> he said, quote, if I find something that works for me, I stay with it no matter how crazy it may seem. <laughs> Sometimes I would rather... Not be driven by routine, but that's the way I am. <laughs> yeah. 
It's like reminds me of like that Malcolm in the Middle episode where they go bowling mm-hmm. and Hal has to like he's bowling the perfect game and yeah, he, he just keeps adding to his routine yeah. with the dance and the drink and undoing and redoing up his fly. Well, based on his logic, anytime something good happens, he rem- he just thinks there's a direct correlation or more importantly, anytime something bad happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so he as keeps, you say, keeps doing it. Yeah, he's he's just going to continue adding until he's just completely yeah i shot the biggest moose i ever shot while i wasn't wearing socks so (laughs) martha wants me to wear them to her wedding now (laughs) fuck you sis (laughs) no socks forever so anyway in 1995 turk was asked by jim riggleman the cubs manager to quote knock off his superstitious idiosyncrasies okay mouthful way to say it Riggleman said, quote, I asked him not to let it be an issue and that he should be recognized by what he does from 60 feet, six inches. If he needs to do those things, do them out of sight of the camera. <laughs> That's kind of hard. Yeah. So, yeah. But coach, I, eat, <laughs> I make the sign of Jesus and eat the dirt. <laughs> yeah. How am I supposed to not crouch? <laughs> <laughs> Wendell argued, I did them to make the game fun. That was all. I just have to think of other ways to have fun. So now it's kind of saying that like he maybe he wasn't really even that superstitious. He was just like like messing with people. Well, it's well, it's my job, so I'm gonna make my job. Some people just make their job a routine, right? It mm-hmm. makes it for goes by easier and it's more fun. Yeah, I guess it's more fun. Whatever. Yeah, fuck you, Riggleman. He was trying yeah. to have fun. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Wendell had wanted to play one year of that of his deal for free. Why? <laughs> just because he wanted, he was that different. He just wanted to play for fun. Uh, the players' union's like, hey. That's Turk. exactly what happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But baseball's collective bargaining agreement prevented him from doing so. Quote, that's still definitely in my hopes and dreams, he said. A lot of players, we'd be playing this game if we got paid or not. I have the most fun when I'm playing the game of baseball. A lot of the monkey business and other things going on I don't care for, he said in a December 2000 article in the Associated Press by Ronald Blum. So monkey business, is he talking steroids? He's probably talking... Yeah, it's like steroid era and all yeah, that stuff. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, doing steroids to get bigger contracts and... Yeah, he's like, big... I'm against it. I don't care about money. I mm-hmm. just want to eat some dirt and licorice and throw the ball. <laughs> yeah, that's a, I don't really want to eat licorice, though. <laughs> yeah, I don't like how it stains my teeth. Yeah. I'm not open to any suggestions else. Yeah. otherwise, though. <laughs> and I'm definitely not touching a ball touched by an umpire. <laughs> yeah. Before it's touched the ground. <laughs> Wait, is he standing? <laughs> <laughs> so that's our first character, Turk, that, Turk Wendell. That uh, was uh, I borderline uh, upset of compulsive disorder. I was going to say he had some odd routines, but most of his antics, as I said, were just in the name of fun and wouldn't necessarily set off any red flags, indicating some kind of mental condition. Necessarily. I fear that you're leading to something that may. <laughs> but in Rory Costello's extensive Sabre bio of Wendell, there was another player in the same era that it would be difficult to say the same thing about. And that is the second player that I alluded to earlier. His name is Kevin Romberg. Have you heard of Kevin Romberg before? It rings a bell, but yeah, I'm not not picturing him like I am Wendell. Okay. 
I'll preface this part on Kevin by saying that in past episodes, we've talked about some odd quirks of players throughout history, some of which may have made the player in question rather easy to mess with. Mm-hmm. Like one example being Mo Berg's odd, odd habit of declaring his newspaper dead yes. and thus useless if it had been touched by someone before him. Yeah, that was a weird one. Yeah. We've seen many quirks and superstitions of players that would slow the game down. You and I, Sean, grew up watching Nomar Garcia Parra of the Red Sox. Of course. Go through his routine of pulling down his gloves and wristband before each pitch. Yeah. And also in eras before that, like Mike Hargrove even earned the moniker the human rain delay. Yes. With an extensive routine in the batter's box. So with Mike's superstitious behavior in his at-bats, it's somewhat ironic and sort of pot calling the kettle black that it was Hargrove as manager of Cleveland who, in making fun, gave the nickname Touch Me, Touch Me to Romberg (laughs) for his notoriously superstitious quirk, which was that if somebody or possibly sometimes something touched him, it was imperative that Romberg touched it back. Okay. And by most standards, this would likely be considered a severe case of OCD in these days. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to think of a situation <laughs> where it's just, where just the doctors, I'm going to examine you. Well, we're going to be doing the same thing here, man. <laughs> yeah. So Kevin J. Romberg was born on November 22nd. Happy birthday, Kevin. Oh. 1955 in Dubuque, Iowa. His family, originally from Austria's Tyrol region, became prominent in this community. In fact, Romberg grew up on Romberg Avenue, one of the city's major streets. Okay. So I guess the Rombergs are a pretty big deal in Dubuque. Mm -hmm. Kevin said, quote, baseball was my dream my whole life. I remember telling a priest at my Catholic school in fifth grade when we had a career day, that's what I was going to do. I was too short to play basketball. <laughs> Listen, Father, I've been thinking about this. I'm not tall enough for basketball. <laughs> I guess it'll have to be baseball. Yep, that's my decision. Praise Jesus. <laughs> what, what should I do once I get there? <laughs> Dare you say? Yeah. <laughs> Different guy, but yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Never mind. <laughs> Romberg went to Dubuque Hempstead High School and broke his leg in ninth grade, so he didn't play any freshman sports. As a junior, he was an honorable mention All-State, and as a senior in 1974, he made first-team All-State and led the Mustangs to the Class A State cha- Class AA State Championship. The Iowa Papers wrote, quote, The most exciting player in this year's state tournaments has to be Kevin Romberg of Dubuque Hempstead. The Mustang shortstop captured the Mississippi Valley Conference batting title with a whopping 596 average in 13 loop const- contests. He had 28 hits, including four home runs, stole 13 bases, and didn't strike out once in 47 trips to the plate. Kevin set the school record with 54 hits that season, and his record stood until 2008. So that's 34 years. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. So he's he's ripping it up in, in college. Um, or no, is that college? No, that's high, high school. school. That's yeah. high school. So Romberg first went to college. Here, if I just like read the next sentence. Exactly. <laughs> Romberg first went to college at Lewis University, a private Catholic institution in Lockport, Illinois. 
Lewis won the NAIA Baseball World Series in 1974, repeating in both 75 and 76. Kevin played junior varsity as a freshman after his sophomore season in which he played varsity. He transferred to another nearby Catholic school, the University of St. Francis in Joliet. During his college career, Kevin hit 465 with an 820 slugging percentage. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, that's, uh, that's great. So, in addition to shortstop, he played third base. And after his junior year, he was selected in the 14th round of the June 1977 amateur draft as a third baseman. And he got a quick look. Uh, who did he get picked by? The, the Braves, I think. I don't even have that here. Anyway. He got uh, picked by somebody. Yeah, he got in there up to the league. Uh, he got a quick look in five games with Batavia in the short season New York Penn League. Mm-hmm. Go Muck Dogs. Yeah. He then spent some time in Waterloo of the Class A Midwest League, which was a back which was back at home in Iowa, about an hour and a half west of Dubuque. The close proximity to home made it common for family to be in the stands watching Kevin. On April 18, 1975, he married his high school sweetheart, Denise Elgin. They had four children, Jody, Trisha, Kevin, Joe, and Natalie. And uh, Kevin said, quote, we had three baseball babies and one after baseball. What? Oh. So, so, like- so he's, married, he's married and having a family while he's still trying to... Trying to make the majors. Oh, okay. What a a baseball baby. (laughs) We had one during the game. We we had three during a baseball game. (laughs) One not baseball. We all like the three baseball babies. (laughs) (laughs) That's not what he's saying. I should mention it's with Cleveland that he's. Yeah, that's what I thought you said because Hardgrove was the Cleveland manager. Yes. Yeah. I just I, I realized I wasn't sure if he'd like moved around, got traded, but I'm pretty sure he's just with Cleveland all the time. So anyway, Romberg got three cups of coffee with the Indians. Quote, almost a whole pot, he joked in 2010. <laughs> he made 47 big league at bats, and he hit an impressive 830, 8, 383, not 838. That would be insane. <laughs> yeah. 383. He was a solid line drive hitter in the minors, too, winning a double-A batting title in 1981, well ahead of two future big league batting champs, Willie McGee and Don Mattingly. In some people's eyes, Kevin's compulsions may have all but halted his professional career. Some describe Kevin as, quote, a bundle of neuroses, or that he was, quote, psyching himself out. Charlie Huff, them with the Texas Rangers, sem- simply that Kevin was nuts. <laughs> There's that one asshole that's like, look, guys, are you trying to make... He's just fucking nuts. Yeah. So he, you know, he's... Like I mentioned there earlier, I mean, it's only 47 big league at-bats, but he's batting three eighty three. Yeah, you know? exactly. He's having... And he's, and he's winning a batting title at double-A... So I think, you know, I'm going to mention it in a bit, but I think it's not just the fact that he's got some of these crazy compulsions. There's some other factors that are sort of not helping him, but yeah. his compulsions are also not helping him be yeah. seen in, like, a positive light, obviously, right? Yeah. So when asked if it had an impact on his career, though, Romberg responded, quote, absolutely not. Other people read it differently. So what? I had a lot of fun with it. In either case, Kevin Romberg's compulsions created some comical situations in a very short time and cemented him into oddball history lore. In 1980, before he made his Major League debut, he traveled to Venezuela to play winter ball, 
getting into 48 games with Aguias del Zulio in Maracaibo. I think that's how you say that. Sure. Should have practiced my pronunciation yeah. too. Anyway, over the winter, Kevin at the plate went 285 and stole 10 bases. The Eagles made the playoffs, and Romberg went 8 for 23 with two RBIs in six games, a 348 average. But never mind his numbers. Dan Roan, a Cubs prospect, was a teammate of Romberg's on the Eagles and decided to have some fun at Kevin's expense. Oh, no. Roan touched him one night and then ran off to the clubhouse to hide after his last at bat. Oh, no. <laughs> Quote, he looked for me for two hours, Roan recalled. Quote, I was hiding under desks, in the shower, the bathroom. He couldn't find me. Roan eventually returned to his hotel, thinking he had outfoxed Romberg, but at three in the morning, there was a knock at his door. <laughs> a sleepy Roan stumbled out of bed to open it. Quote, it was Romberg. He touched me and ran away. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What, what was happening in that mid-time? He's just searching the clubhouse. I guess so. He's just like, I'll just bide my time. He's got to go home to sleep eventually. Yeah. You know, just sound logic. Yeah, I was like picturing the like Jurassic Park scene at the end with the Velociraptors. <laughs> and Kevin Romberg's around the office trying to hide from them. He's <laughs> hiding in the stove. Oh, God. I thought you were going to say that, that he was going to come up to the plate and like just not be able to do it. Anyways. No, no. Uh, in another incident, this time when Romberg was enjoying one of his cups of coffee in Cleveland, Romberg's teammate Rick Sutcliffe snuck into the bathroom while Romberg was occupying the private space in one of the stalls. Sutcliffe then reached under the walls of the cubicle and touched Romberg on his big toe. <laughs> Romberg had no way of knowing who had touched him, so Kevin, in his mind, had no choice but to go around the clubhouse and touch each of his teammates to ensure that he had touched back whoever the teammate was that got him. I mean, did he try to, like, solve the mystery a little bit first? Sutcliffe's like 6'8". <laughs> Probably had pretty big hands. Yeah, you could have you deduced just by what the hand looked like, possibly. Also, wait, no, the other guy was the non-sock guy. Why is your big toe exposed? I mean, maybe he was in his sock when he touched his big toe. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's, it's not clear gross. whether he was sock his feet were socked or not. Yeah, it's pretty gross <laughs> to be taking a poop in a clubhouse with no socks on. It's true, and like maybe he had sandals on. Exactly. Well, shower sandals. Yeah, maybe he had, had those clothes, you know. There you go. All right. So, Romberg did have a contingency plan for the occasion that a person got away from him before he could touch them back. In this case, Kevin would simply send the escapee a letter, pronouncing that by receiving the letter, it constitutes a touch. <laughs> I like that. It's a problem-solving way of getting around a compulsion. You're just like, well, if I just send them a letter, I'm touching them with the writing. Exactly, yeah. It's just, he has to know who to send the letter to, right? <laughs> Which is like the problem in the Sutcliffe situation, right? <laughs> But also, a letter wouldn't be able to solve all of the problems as his compulsion didn't only apply to people. No. Once during a minor league game, former All-Star and friend, Crazy Brooke Jacoby, (laughs) (laughs) who we as Blue Jays fans know was not afraid to have a little fun or to fight an umpire. Yep, that's why we call him that. (laughs) Tagged Romberg and then threw the ball right out of the ballpark. 
Wait. So he has to touch imagine the it's ball? during yeah I'm ima- I imagine this is like during batting practice but yeah. yeah he touches him with the ball and then whips it over the stands and right out of the park. <laughs> okay. So does he chase after it like a dog? Since Brooke had touched Kevin with the ball, it was the ball specifically that Romberg was compelled to touch back. 100%. Jacoby contends that Romberg spent two hours searching for where the ball had landed so he could touch it and complete the loop. The loop. Yeah. <laughs> of course, yes. Oh, well, that's what I... That's just my way of describing it, but yeah. Sure. So Romberg's strange quirks went beyond the game of tag, however... Or, yes, went beyond the game of tag. Like most players, he had a ritual every time he stepped into the box. Romberg would tap his bat, helmet, and cleats four times each, and then he would take four practice swings. That's not that weird. But it's a lot. Yeah, yeah, it would take a lot of time. He would also make sure he turned left into the batter's box, rationalizing that baseball has no right turns. I mean, that's one way to put it. (laughs) I want to make sure I'm getting oriented with the game I'm about to play. The obsession with left turns extended beyond the diamond as well. And after Romberg hung them up, he remarked, quote, I finally forced myself to quit, to quit it when I realized my kids had become aware of what I was doing. We were in a shopping mall and they started making left turns in order to make a right. (laughs) (laughs) When my family started getting involved in it, I figured it was time to end it. (laughs) That guy's dad won't turn right. (laughs) Daddy says turning right is against the rules. (laughs) Gotta make four lefts to make a right. (laughs) Remember, kids, four lefts make a right. Someone tells you to turn right. (laughs) Ignore them. They're against baseball. We're a baseball family. A, except for that one kid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it li- yeah. That one kid, yeah. It likely wasn't the only reason. There was much turnover in the Cleveland organization through the late 70s and early 80s, and no one could argue that Romberg never got a fair, and one could argue that Romberg never got a fair chance to break through. Mm-hmm. He said that after having such success in Venezuela, it seemed as though the front office didn't even know he had gone there. So he like come, he came, apparently came back and was like, "Fuck, man, I hit like 350 down in Venezuela," and they were like, "You're in Venezuela? <laughs> Whoa, we got your letter." Yeah. <laughs> it was very touching. It was very. <laughs> Regardless of the reason, Romberg eventually had to come to the reality that minor league ball was no no way to make a true living for a family. Romberg supplemented his four-figure minor league salary by pouring concrete and doing carpentry. His wife, Denise, made three times as much as he did with her job working as a bank teller. But the family was still below the poverty line and qualified for the earned income credit when they filed for their taxes. Wow. Yeah. So, Romberg went on to scout for the... So, he hangs them up. He hangs them up. He comes to scout. Yeah. Comes on to be a scout for Cleveland from 88 to 92. He then became a college coach, first for Cleveland State and then Lakeland Community College. Romberg also went into business for himself, forming a company called KRE Incorporated with ventures in buying and selling minor league teams. Interesting. When asked about his favorite memories of baseball and what the game means to him, Romberg said, quote, 
Hitting my one major league homer on my son's first birthday. That's a big memory. But kids need to believe in themselves. If we can teach them self-esteem and confidence to be a more giving person, to learn how to deal with failures and move on, that's what baseball can do. That is. Yeah. And that's the story of Kevin Bromberg and his crazy compulsions. But, you know, like I said, I wasn't going into a full biography of uh, players, but that's a list of some of the weirder weirdest uh, super superstitions that players have had yeah no no it definitely was interesting i mean how did he function as a coach as, i don't know that's a, a good man, question like, i wonder if that like sort of continue because you know well, it doesn't sound like he resolved his like game of tag <laughs> issue like he decided okay i'm not gonna turn left anymore yeah but sounds like the left thing was just more of a fun thing well, exactly. You know? I mean, I think it's, it was just a, yeah, it was, he clearly had some compulsive disorder, but at the same point, he, he just leaned into it too. He was like, oh, this is fun. He didn't even realize <laughs> yeah. that it was an issue. I just love him as a scout <laughs> going back. <laughs> what did you see? Well, I touched Manny Ramirez, uh, Manny Ramirez touched me on the back and <laughs> I, I, I couldn't touch him back. And then I sent him a letter, um, uh, <laughs> I don't know if we should draft him. <laughs> I spent three hours writing letters. <laughs> I, I shook sh a lot of hands. Yeah. It was a mistake. It was a mistake. Someone found out I was a former ball player. They patted me on the back. It took me an hour to find them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, man. No, that's, uh, that's like absolutely. The Gil Hodges stuff, too, is absolutely. I think that's more ridiculous. The Gil Hodges stuff? Oh, <laughs> What was his name? Wade Boggs? No, no. Well, the Wade Boggs, the Cubs guy. With oh, the, Turk Wendell? Turk Wendell. <laughs> Gil, Gil Hodges. Hodges. That's not even close. It's not even close. Who's <laughs> Gil Hodges? He's a famous manager. Yes. Okay. All right. Of the Mets. Um, I've clearly been, we've been going for a couple hours now. So, yeah. oh, Let's man. wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. But yeah, no, that was fun. That was fun. Turk Wendell's stat. <laughs> yeah. The Turk Wendell stat stuff was absolutely insane. Dwayne Boggs eating chicken for a year is like it was to make and money. just to sell a book yeah. too. And then Stummy's like, "Well, I guess I'm eating chicken every day for the rest of my career." <laughs> you don't have to do when you're in private. You don't have to eat chicken. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Gray said. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for that story. Definitely uh, a mixed bag today. Um, Tune in next time. Uh, we'll probably be breaking, taking a break, I should say, at some point uh, over yeah, the holidays. Holidays are coming up. Holidays are coming, but we might have another story for you before 2023. Uh, until then, give us a review, give us a follow, give us whatever you can uh, on the Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok, whatever. On Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and of course, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Uh, until next time, we'll be bringing you some more baseball history. I'm Sean. And I'm Ed. And we were doing the baseball. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.